Welcome to Marx's Voice, bringing you ideas and analysis from Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net where you can donate and subscribe to our paper online and help support us in the struggle for socialism. I would like to invite you all to join me in a voyage, a voyage of discovery. It is a voyage which I began a long time ago, longer than I care to remember, in fact, and which has not yet come to an end. It is an exciting voyage of ideas, and it's a voyage which will carry us to many lands and will bring us face to face with many wonderful ideas and concepts. And we will find ourselves in the course of this journey, we will find ourselves in the presence of some of the most remarkable, some of the most brilliant and original thinkers that have ever been seen on the face of the earth. But I warn you in advance that this, uh, like any other voyage, will not always be easy. Parts of it will challenge your thinking, your thinking powers will be challenged to the limit. In fact, you might even you might even regret that you even embarked on this voyage in the first place. But what I can promise you all is this. If you persist to the end, from this voyage, you will emerge personally and politically enriched. At the end of it, your understanding of the world, of society, of ideas, will be far, far deeper than what they were before, I guarantee it. And therefore, therefore, this is the point, you will be far better armed and equipped with the ideological weapons, which are the indispensable prerequisite for carrying out the revolutionary transformation of society. This great journey that I'm talking about is, of course, you guessed it, none other than the history of philosophy. But you know, I can already hear, I can yet already hear them growling in the background. I can already hear the disgruntled voices of the skeptics complaining. What has all this got to do with Marxism? They will, they will ask indignantly. You know, our enemies, the enemies of Marxism, particularly in the universities, often resort to a well-known caricature, it's a straw man. You know, it's easy to set up a straw man and you knock it down again. It is a caricature which informs us that Marx, oh yes, Marx was the man that reduced everything to economics. You, you've heard of that, no doubt. It's uh, commonly, it's often, it's frequently repeated. So, of course, you know it. Of course, that is absolute nonsense. How on earth can you reduce everything to economics? It's not possible. It's a stupid, it's a silly idea. And Marx could be accused of many things. He certainly was not silly. It is true, of course, that Karl Marx is well known as the man who carried out a real revolution in the three or four volumes of capital, a revolution in economics, that is. Yes, but there are many things, of course, in the in that of great importance for, for people's lives, apart from economics, quite apart from economics. And Marx and Engels paid, you better believe it, they paid due attention to them. I've got 50 odd volumes of the collected works of Marx and Engels to prove the point. <clears throat> and consequently, my friends, can't emphasize this point too, too much. Consequently, Marxism <clears throat> is an extremely rich and wide ranging, ranging doctrine which embraces practically the entire scope, the entire vast scope of human experience, history, philosophy, religion, art and science, and many other things, uh, apart from, in addition to economics. And yet, you know, I, I, I have often found that all too often people who regard themselves as Marxists, I don't know why, uh, they talk and act in a way that corresponds precisely to the caricature, the mechanical caricature 
presented by our enemies. These are people, like, you've met them, of course, you've all met them. People who are sectarians, you know, with a very narrow and crude notion of Marxism. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's not a, a, an unknown thing. Lenin described it as economism, you know, as something which, by the way, he sharply criticized and rejected completely. He wrote in, Lenin wrote in the famous work, What is to be done? I, I quote the following words. Now, please, pay, please pay attention to these words. Without revolutionary theory, Lenin wrote, there can be no revolutionary movement. Get a load of that. This idea, he says, cannot be insisted upon too strongly at a time when the fashionable preaching of opportunism goes hand in hand with an infatuation for the narrowest forms of practical activity. You've seen this, haven't you? These guys who go around spouting crude agitation about this, that, and the other, without any, any attention to the real ideas of Marxism at all. And Lenin added, and this is an important point, he added, and I quote, the role of a vanguard fighter, and we are, we are vanguard fighters, the role of vanguard fighter can be fulfilled only by a party that is guided by the most advanced theory, the most advanced theory, my friends and comrades. And you know, we take Lenin's words very, very seriously. Today, I'll, I'll spell it out in case anybody's got the slightest doubt, but I'll spell it out in, in four letter words. Today, the international Marxist tendency, the tendency to which I have the honor to, to be associated, is the only tendency in the world, yes, my friends, the only tendency in the world, I repeat, that has consistently defended Marxist theory. And that's what sets us apart. Many things set us apart from these other circus clowns, I would describe them, pseudo-Marxists, there's two, two, two a penny. Many things set us apart from these people. Yes, but what fundamentally sets us apart from all other tendencies of the movement that claim to stand for Marxism is the fact that we, we, st we stand for, for, for Marxist theory, 100, 1,000%. And incidentally, it is this and this alone, my friends, it is this alone that gives us the right to exist as a separate tendency. The problem is, you see, that many people who think that they know about what Marxism is have, have never bothered to study it. They've never studied Marxism in all its glorious richness and depth. They are guilty of a kind of mental laziness, actually, merely skating over the surface, repeating like parrots a, a, a few slogans which, uh, and quotes taken out of context, which they've learned by, by rote. The genuine content of which, by the way, remains a closed book to them. Over the time, of course, one becomes familiar, you know, they become familiar with some of these notions, slogans. Yes, you know, but what is familiar is not understood precise, precisely because it is familiar. I'll come back to that in a moment. Hegel had something profound to say about that. Far too often, people who consider themselves to be Marxists are satisfied merely to repeat the elementary propositions. Uh, the ABC, the ABC, they repeat the word dialectics in the same way uh, as a meaningless incantation, you know? The same way as, a, as an, an, an old Catholic priest repeats the Hail Mary without giving it a second thought, without giving a second thought to the meaning of the words which he's mumbling. And Hegel, Hegel dealt with this very nicely, you know, a long time ago. He wrote in the Phenomenology of Mind, Aber was bekannt ist, ist darum noch nicht erkannt. In case you didn't know German, it means, but what is known is not necessarily on that account understood. Well said, well said, well said. You know, I, I met some so-called Marxists who repeat dialectics in every other word, every other sentence. Ah, yes, we know the basic laws of dialectics. They are so familiar to us that we can repeat them at the moment's notice and apply them mechanically to any given situation. You know, as a matter of fact, this method, so-called method, is not dialectics at all. It is formalism of the worst sort. And it has nothing whatsoever to do with Marxism, the scientific method of Marxism. 
not long ago, I better not be too, too precise in what I say, but I'll say it anyway. Not long ago, I had the misfortune to have to read a very long, very lengthy document that, uh, that mentions dialectics in every other page, if not every, every other sentence. And yet when I came to the end of the document, I concluded there's not a single atom of dialectics in it from the first page to the last. You know, th this, kind, this kind of Marxism is really not worth very much, my friends. Now, Engels defined, of course, the basic laws of, of dialectics, we know. Oh, by the way, he gave a most interesting definition. He described dialectics as the, as the most general laws of nature, human society, and human thought. Now, just think of it through. That's the most extraordinary claim for anyone to make. In, in other words, what he's saying, the most basic laws of everything, because what's excluded from this nature, society, and human thought, what is he left out? You know, but you see, this, this claim has been demonstrated by modern science. Oh, yes. There's a very good book by an American physicist, actually, um, called Ubiquity by Mark Buchanan, I think his name is, which illustrates, which actually, without mentioning Marxism or dialectics, makes the point that, that all of the basic laws explained by Engels and, and Hegel, if it comes to that, are present everywhere. That's the word, that's what the word ubiquity means in Latin. It means everywhere. Ubiquity means everywhere. Now, the, the, the laws, of course, outlined by, by Engels are, are fundamental in the same way that the knowledge of the, of the ABC is fundamental to a small child in the nursery class. You could say, of course, quite correctly, that if you don't know your ABC, you wouldn't get very far. Uh, and of course, this is quite correct. However, a child of six who was only able to repeat continuously the first three letters of the alphabet would not be considered to be particularly intelligent. And after all, after the ABC, there are many other letters in the alphabet which have to be learned for anyone who aspires to knowledge. Now, in order to, to, to arrive at a full understanding of dialectical materialism, a great deal of careful study and work will be necessary. You better believe it. It is not, there's no royal road to knowledge, there's no royal road to science, there's no royal road to Marxism either. But you know, here, here, here comes the point. There is a difficulty involved in the study of philosophy in general, and Marxist philosophy in particular. And th this lies at the heart. It answers the question, which is in the mind of everyone, I suppose, why on earth is Alan Woods writing a history of philosophy? It lies at the heart of the work which I'm presenting to you today. You see, when Marx and Engels wrote about dialectical materialism, they could presuppose a basic knowledge, an acquaintance, if you like, of the history of philosophy on the part of at least the educated reading public of their day. Nowadays, however, it's impossible to make such, a, such an assumption. You know, I must say, I must say to you that I feel really sorry. My heart bleeds. I feel really sorry for the students of philosophy today. Those uh, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed young students who enter the philosophy department with high hopes of enlightenment, and are very swift, either they're either very swiftly dis disenchanted, or else they're dragged into the poisonous cesspool of postmodernist gibberish from which, unfortunately, no, no escape is possible. In either case, of course, they will emerge from the university with, without ever learning anything of value from the great thinkers of the past. And that's a pity. That's a great pity. You see, the modern uh, so-called bourgeois philosophers, postmodernists, not content with filling the mind of young people with postmodernist gibberish, have the audacity to introduce the same garbage into the study of the past. And they treat, by the way, they treat the great philosophers of the past, they were great thinkers. They treat the great philosophers of the past with absolute contempt, simply because they do not fit in with the current accepted gibberish, which passes for philosophy. Now, this contempt for the past is not an accident. Evidently, the high priests of postmodernism do not like to be reminded of the fact that there was once a time, once upon a time, when, when uh, philosophers really had had something profound and important to say about the world. 
In the past, incidentally, philosophers were rebels, revolutionaries, heroes. Socrates was forced to drink a cup of poisonous hemlock because he, he defied the existing ideas of society in Athens. Giordano Bruno was sentenced to be burned to death by the Roman Inquisition for his heretical views, when, which he refused to heroically refused to recant. The materialist philosophers then of the Enlightenment in France, they prepared the way for the French Revolution. These were people who were, who were relevant, who were relevant to society and to the world. But nowadays, of course, unfortunately, the situation is quite different. And the attitude of most people, let's be honest, let's call a spade a shovel. The attitude of most people towards philosophy today is one of contempt, or rather complete indifference, because it is ir irrelevant to anybody except for a bunch of chat the chattering classes at the university will be pleased to spend all their time talking a lot of bullshit. But uh, this contempt, by the way, is well-deserved. It's well-deserved. The, 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 the so-called philosophers of today deserve nothing, nothing else but contempt and indifference, which is the attitude of most people. The modern philosophy today provides a, a truly lamentable spectacle, and uh, it brings into mind Shakespeare's immortal words. Last scene of all, this is uh, summing up of the history of philosophy, you like, in the modern period. Last scene of all that ends this strange eventful history is second childishness and mere oblivion, sans teeth, Sans eyes, sans means without, by the way. Sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything. <laughs> I think that's a very suitable epitaph to place on the grave of, of modern bourgeois philosophy. Yes, yeah, but, but, it is unfortunate, to say the least, it's unfortunate, it's a tragedy, that in turning aside, turning their backs on the present-day philosophical desert, People neglect the great thinkers of the past, who in contrast to the modern pygmies were real giants of human thought who really were responsible for carrying civilization forward. One can learn a great deal, you know, a great deal. You learn nothing at all from the modern philosophers. You can chuck their writings straight into the bin. But one can learn a great deal from, from, the, from the ancient Greeks, the pre-Socratic philosophers in particular. Spinoza, that wonderful father of materialism, funnily enough, the French materialist of the, of the Enlightenment, and above all, of course, my hero, Hegel. All of these were, were heroic pioneers of thought who prepared the way. That's what you must understand. They prepared the way for the brilliant achievements of Marxist philosophy and can rightly be considered as an important part of our revolutionary heritage. We must lay claim to these thinkers who were rejected by the bourgeois idiots today. You know, the, the, first, uh, real, the, the first real exp exponent of dialectics was the great Greek philosopher Heraclitus, marvelous man, who lived approximately, yes, as long ago as two and a half thousand years ago he lived, yes. He, not, not much is known about his life. And his works so, survives today as a series of, well, it's only a few pages, you know, a series of brief but profound aphorisms of which I quote one or two. I mean, there are many of them, but uh, well, well-known ones. For example, it is the same thing in us that is living and dead, asleep and awake, young and old. Each changes place and becomes the other. Things change, and one thing changes into, into its opposite. And the most marvelous phrase, which is well-known, of course, we step and do not step into the same stream. We are and are not. What a wonderful expression, you know. But these utterances, which even today they seem paradoxical, I think, to most people, not to us. These utterances seem so difficult to understand precisely because they contradict what we call common sense, a common sense view of the world. And so obscure and paradoxical did they appear to, to his contemporaries that they they earned him the, the nickname of Heraclitus the Dark, because they couldn't understand what he was talking about. And yet these marvelous ideas, these marvelously profound dialectical ideas, 
have been brilliantly confirmed by the discoveries of modern science. And yet, oh yes, they are indeed in contradiction with the notions of common sense, which by the way, inform us, common sense, remember this, common sense informs us that the earth is flat, that the sun revolves around the earth every 24 hours and so on. Above all, common sense tells us that things do not change that they're fixed for all time, that uh, you can't change human nature. How many times have you heard that as an argument against Marxism? Yeah, sure. And yet, this is false. It is expressed, this common sense, is, it can be summed up in a well-known saying, I'm sure you've heard of this, as solid as the ground under my feet. you heard that, no doubt. Yes, but the problem is the ground under my feet is not solid at all. And the apparently solid crust of stones and rock and earth and so on, crust of the earth, is extremely thin. As a matter of fact, it's as thin as the skin on an apple. Yeah. And beneath this very thin skin, there, there, there lies a, a whole unimaginable world of high, vast quantities of molten rock, unimaginable pressures and temperatures, seeking a way, seeking a, seeking a weak point in the earth's surface whereby to express itself, to burst out. Of course, it takes a long time for this to come to fruition. On the surface, nothing appears to be happening. But sooner or later, these uh, Im imperceptible subterranean invisible processes will find the, the weak spot that they're looking for in the, in the Earth's surface, resulting in the, in the most cataclysmic explosions known to, to us. We know now, by the way, that the, co the continents themselves are moving. And that the Himalayas, which were once at the bottom, were once at the bottom of the Indian Ocean. We know this. In other words, things, as Heraclitus explained, things change into the opposite. Now you see, there is a fairly precise analogy here between the geological events which I've described and the process that is taking place within society at the present time. You know, you often hear people. I mean, people so-called less. So how I hate that word. Left. What What left? What are you talking about? There's no left left. Let's look at the Labour Party conference if you want any proof. But anyway, there we are. Uh, they get, they're, they're depressed and they're upset and they're, they're despondent and so on. Let, let the, leave them to the despondency. The reason that they're depressed is they don't understand the processes which is taking place in the working class right now. You know, beneath the surface calm, there's a seething undercurrent of discontent, which is seeking an expression of rage, of indignation, of frustration that is seeking a way out. And that is, that is undoubtedly preparing the way, inevitably, for a social explosion. When you can't say, you can't say, same as you can't say when, when, when San Francisco will be destroyed by an earthquake. But that is going to, ha going to happen, you better not uh, doubt it. And here you see, Something which was stated one time by the great Russian revolutionary Democrat, Alexander Herzen, when he described dialectics as, it's a wonderful definition, the algebra of revolution. In order to solve, let's be, bring the things to, 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 to fruition. In order to, to solve the most urgent problems of society, the entire rotten edifice of capitalism must be overthrown, that we know. That we know. Yes, but in order to speed up the demolition of this rotten system, it is absolutely necessary to clear the ground of rubbish by demolishing the rotten ideology which is propping it up. That's, that's an aspect which is frequently forgotten. That, uh, that's why Engels, by the way, and Lenin enthusiastically agreed with that. He said there are three forms of struggle the economic struggle, strikes, and so on and so forth, for higher wages. Yes, yeah, that's important. The political struggle, which is self-explanatory. Yes, but he said there's a third, the third front, which is the ideological struggle, which is too often ignored and cannot be ignored, as both Engels and Lenin strenuously insisted. You know, now this this shows the important the importance of understanding the ideas, ideas which didn't drop from the clouds, by the way. These ideas didn't drop from the clouds, but were shaped over a lengthy period of history. The whole history of philosophy, actually, has been a constant struggle between two hostiles, hostile and mutually exclusive viewpoints. 
philosophical materialism on the one hand and philosophical materialism on the other hand. That is to say, the scientific approach and, it, and the attempt, the constant attempt to drag human consciousness backwards to the world of religious mysticism. That's what idealism is, basically. And to this day, to this very day, philosophy remains a battleground over which the two antagonistic and mutually incompatible schools are, are, continue to fight, to fight it out. Now, Marxism must find a, a comprehensive alternative to the old discredited ideas of bourgeois philosophy. But we have absolutely no right to turn our backs on the great thinkers of the past, those heroes who paved the way for all the great advances of modern science and indeed prepared the way also for Marxism itself. In other words, to sum up, we have a duty today to rescue all that was valuable in the history of philosophy while discarding all that is false, outmoded and useless. And just as we pay careful attention to the lessons afforded by the class struggles of the past, so we have a duty today to study the great battles of ideas which constitutes the essential meaning of the history of philosophy. The October Revolution, the Paris Commune, the storming of the, the, storming of the Bastille in 1789, all of these things, of course, prepared the way for, are preparing the way for the great socialist revolution of the future which will transform the entire world. Yes, but in the same way, in the same way, the great philosophical battles of the past uh, laid the basis for dialectical materialism and therefore for Marxism. Therefore, in the same way that we study the experience of the class struggles of the past, the revolutions of the past, so it is incumbent upon us to study the past ideas of philosophy and to learn the lessons of those great uh, ideas. And I think that it is, it is an important, I agree with what Jack said, what the chairman said, it's an important part of the education of our young comrades is a careful study of the history of philosophy. I don't have any doubt about it. If my book can serve to stimulate and encourage you to do so, then it will have achieved its purpose. And therefore, in saying uh, temporarily, saying farewell, I wish you a fruitful and enjoyable journey. My friends and comrades, bon voyage. Well, I think it's been an excellent discussion. We're all too short, but we will continue it in the future. Now, the first question perhaps we should ask is, um, why study philosophy at all? And what is philosophy anyway? And you see, philosophy is a mode of thinking, but it's a peculiar mode of thinking. It, which differs from everyday thinking that most people are acquainted with, is a kind of thing which poses the big questions, the really big questions which sooner or later most people have to consider. But it does differ from the ordinary thought of the thinking of men and women, that's perfectly true, which has a very limited and a one-sided uh, character because it is only, it's limited and determined by everyday and practical considerations. You think about it, and it's a tragedy, really. Most people, I've got no time to think of anything except the immediate questions confronting them in life. Most people are submerged, if you like, in the daily humiliating grind, the struggle for existence and so on. And for thousands of years, culture has been the monopoly of a privileged few. And by the way, culture is power. Knowledge is power, by the way. You better believe it. You know, Engels once said, I, I think most comrades don't know this quote from Engels, but I'll give it, and it's a very important quote. Can't remember when he said it, but he did. He said that in any society in which art, science, and government is the monopoly of a few, in that society, that few will, will use and abuse its position to defend its privileges. Now, that, that, that actually expresses in, in nutshell the essence of class society. And therefore, the, the Bible actually has got a very graphic expression for that. It's, it says it refers to the society being divided into two classes. And one of them is the hewers of wood and the drawers of water. In other words, the people who work with their hands and are not required to think. Now, we have to break with this. 
We have to, we must conquer ideas and conquer philosophy, actually, as a, as a, as a revolutionary tool. Why do I say this? Well, I think it's been, I actually mentioned this a while back. I said, I mentioned Joseph Dijkin and Comrade looked look perplexed. Who the hell is Joseph Dijkin? He was actually a, a German worker, an artisan actually, who by still reading Hegel came to the same conclusions as Marx, independently of Marx about philosophy. And Dijkin said, I think everyone is, is quoting Dijkin now, uh, but Dijkin once said that official philosophy, he said, it's not a science but the safeguard against socialism. He said social democracy, but in those days, that's what it meant. A safeguard against socialism. And he's quite right. Absolutely co correct. Philosophy is not something that's, that's uh, removed from reality. Oh, no, 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 no. And no matter how indignity, uh, indignity the uh, professional philosophers de deny it, they are the deliberate and conscious de the defenders of the status quo. And their ideas, their philosophical ideas, are weapons in the struggle against Marxism. There's no two ways about it. And therefore, we have to, to tackle this as one more battlefield to, 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 that we have to deal with. Now, I, I don't have a lot of time at my disposal. I'll try to answer all the points that were raised. All of them were very good. In order to answer them properly, we'll be here till tomorrow, which I don't think is, uh, is on the agenda. Now, Dora asked the first question, and she asked, do I think it is necessary to study the history of philosophy in order to fully understand philosophy itself. Well, I think that Comrade Fred uh, did answer that when he spoke, and I don't have a lot to answer to add to what he said. In general, you see, if you think about it, uh, you can only really understand uh, uh, something by seeing how it evolves as a process. That goes for everything. It goes for life itself. It goes for history, society, everything. And of course, it goes for philosophy also. It is very important, I think it's very important to know how Marxism developed historically. It didn't just drop from the clouds, as, as, uh, as Fred pointed out. It was the, the result of a long process of the evolution of ideas, at the center of which, as I've said, is this str constant struggle between idealism and materialism. And of course, uh, th this is it's, it's very important. By the way, Lenin said, this is an interesting point, that the best writings on materialism were the works of the 18th century French materialists like Holbach and Diderot, and I think he, he had a point. These people, these philosophers, these great figures of the past, they're not alien to us. They are our direct lineal ancestors, and we should pay, not just pay, render homage to them, but we should learn from them as I think Fred pointed out, and that's the meaning of this book. Now, Aaron says that uh, there are many books out there that uh, claim to be a history of philosophy. And in what way does this book differ from uh, any other book? Well, it differs, Aaron, fundamentally, as you will find if you pick up any bourgeois book which pretends to deal with the history of philosophy. You see, all these books are written from a definite point of view, a definite philosophical standpoint. And that is almost nine times out of 10, it is the position of idealism in one form or another. And all of them, of course, constitute the same thing. They're all directed against the ideas of Marxism, materialism and dialectics. This book, I think, I'm right in saying, hey, I think Comrade uh, Hamid said it, and he's read more histories of philosophy than, than I have probably. But he pointed out that, uh, that, uh, that as far as he knows, there is no other book. And I, I must say that I, do, I can't remember. I've got, got, as you can see, around me, I've got, I've got a fairly big library. And I've looked into this quite closely for the last, uh, as long, longer than what I care to remember. But you see, as far as I am aware, there is no other Marxist book which deals with the history of philosophy. I think it's an astonishing fact, but I believe it is a fact. And therefore, I think that this is a, a, a serious task which we, we have to undertake. And we have, uh, we've undertook it, as Hamid says, as part of our offensive on the ideological front. Now, Comrade uh, Emily asked a very interesting question, I thought. How does the development of philosophy interact with the development of art and culture and things like that at the same time? Now, if, 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 you, if you look at the, the ideas, the so-called ideas of the postmodernist uh, idiots, 
They maintain that there's no such thing as pro progress, it doesn't exist. So one society is as good as another, one culture is as good as another. So I beg to differ. I think even the most superficial uh, view of history will reveal precisely that there are periods, there are different periods. There are some periods of great advance, such as the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and so on, but there are also other periods of, of stagnation and decline and even regression such as the period that followed the collapse of the Roman Empire. They try to deny that now. They mean that they try to maintain that the barbarians were really quite nice people, you know. The Vikings were merely peaceful traders and all the rest of the crap, which uh, if you can believe that, you can believe anything, but there you are. The fact of the matter is that after, after the collapse of the Roman Empire, the collapse of the, the ancient civilization, there was a whole period in which uh, the whole of culture was thrown back starting with the most elementary things. So I'll just give one part. There's a very interesting book by, by William Manchester called A World Lit Only by Fire. I think you should read that book. That really conveys the barbarism of the Dark Ages, which now they try to paint in, in the pit, prettiest possible colors to back up their nonsense of the argument that there's no, there's no such thing as, as, as progress. But just one statistic I'll give. I could give many others. 1,000 years after the fall of Rome, the only decent, half-decent roads in Europe were Roman roads. The art of road building was lost, the same as the art of bricklaying was, was lost, and many other things were lost. And as for art and culture, under the, under the dictatorship of the Roman Catholic Church, it was just, it was, it was completely destroyed. There was an interesting program on the television the other day, which I was, about the question of the, the nude in art, you know. Because in the Middle Ages, they were nudes were not allowed. The great statues of the, of the, the few of them that they didn't destroy, they destroyed a lot of them, chopped their heads off and so on and so forth, destroyed them. But you see, the, the few that were allowed, you weren't allowed to, to show an actual nude. They covered up their private parts. For example, in the Sistine Chapel, one of the, one of the popes took it into his mind to cover up a, a fig leaf over the the Almighty's genitals. I don't know if anybody consulted the Almighty about this, uh, this act, but he did anyway. And uh, yes, why? Why? Because they're idealists, they're religious fanatics, and for them, the material world is evil, don't you understand? Life itself is evil. You, life is only a, a veil of tears. You, it's only a preparation for death. You know, that's, that's, that's really is the argument, you know, <laughs> these guys, you know, you... You must live as, as, as miserably as possible because you'll be happy and you'll be well off and you'll be well away. You'll be, you'll be, everything is going to be fine and dandy when you're dead. Well, I never quite bought that one myself. You know, I think when you're dead, you're dead. But in any case, no, the body was evil. You, you weren't allowed to show the human body at all. But then, of course, comes the Renaissance, a great revolution. And by the way, that was really a, a symptom of the bourgeois revolution. Yes, yes, the rise of a new revolutionary class in the cities of the north of Italy and in the low countries and, and finally in Britain and so on and so forth. The bourgeois revolution, yes, was a great revolution. It affected everything. Yes, and it affected art. For the first time, you found genuine, even penetrated religious art in, in the end. You had Madonnas and child, which were, which were real women with real breasts and holding real babies and so on. That, that came into it. And real portraits and so on and so forth. Okay. And of course, statues of the human body, this wonderful human body, naked flesh, naked human bodies of men and women. It was, a, lot of, a lot of people were quite upset about that. Well, what glorious art. And what that meant was re-establishing the rights of human, humans to be humans, to enjoy life, to have sex, to have, have bodies, to have, enjoy material things. Yes, of course. That wonderful, wonderful uh, renaissance, which means a rebirth, brother. That's what the word means, a rebirth. It was a rebirth. And that affected everything. It affected art, as I've said, art, sculpture, and paintings, and so on. It also affected philosophy. It affected literature, the great... Uh, Galaxy of writers that emerged, Boccaccio, Dante, but a bit earlier, he was a bit earlier, and people, Rabelais and all those people that emerged, Chaucer in Britain. It was a wonderful, wonderful time, a revolutionary time. 
And uh, that meant a struggle, against, first of all, a struggle against the existing, existing ideology, against the church in the first instance, against this horrible dictatorship of these uh, religious fanatics which were destroying uh, human culture. And human, humanity broke through. And in philosophy, of course, you had the birth of a new philosophy, particularly in this country, in, in England, you had the emergence of empiricism, uh, which, which destroyed the old nonsense, the mystical nonsense of the Middle Ages. And that, that is led to the birth in terms of modern science or of medicine. Leonardo da Vinci wasn't just a great artist. He was a scientist. He studied anatomy. That's how, why his paintings are so exact, so wonderfully exact, because he knew all about human anatomy, which was illegal, by the way, to be severely punished and things like that. I mean, it was a, a marvelous period, you know. And similarly, the French uh, Renaissance, the French uh, rather Enlightenment, as I said earlier, prepared the way for the French Revolution. Before they could overthrow the Bastille, the French people, first of all, had to overthrow the, the mental Bastille of the old ide ideology of, of absolutism and of the, of the church and so on and so forth. These guys led the way. They led, they were brave men. And they were materialists, yes, atheists. As Lenin said, the finest writings you could find is by Diderot, Holbach, and the other atheists and materialists of the 18th century. Now, in other words, I think Emily's question comes very much to the point. Revolution produces a general elevation of the human spirit. It does. And that, 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 that is so throughout, throughout history. Whereas counter-revolution has the opposite effect. It's, as, as Trotsky said, revolution is the locomotive of history and reaction is the fascism in particular, is, uh, puts the brake on all human progress, throw, throws society backwards. That's perfectly true. Danielle, now what does she say? She asked a question, for communists who are new to, to Marxist philosophy, would a study of this book be a good starting point to grasp the fundamentals of dialectical reason? Well, I hope that, I sincerely, perhaps I'm not the chap that should say this, being the author, I run the risk of sounding immodest. I think it would be a very good starting point, yes. But there are, there are, there are others. I, I wrote a book, as, as Hamid said, called Reason and Revolt. Perhaps you could read that first and then, then proceed to read the history of philosophy. It might be a better order. But of course, there is no, let's be clear about it, there is no substitute whatsoever for reading the Marxist classics themselves. I would perhaps recommend a start, some of the a beginner to start with Trotsky's marvelous little essay, The ABC of Materialist Dialectic, which is part of In Defense of Marxism. And Engels, of course, Engels wrote some marvelous works. Ludwig Feuerbach is a very important work. Anti During is fundamental. And later on, perhaps, you could read The Dialectics of Nature. You could read that together with Reason and Revolt. I think they go together. And Lenin, of course, the materialism and imperial criticism. There are many, Plekhanov also wrote some very good books, fundamental problems of Marxism and so on. There are, there are many. The trouble with, with that is that the, the works, Marx, in the works of Marxism, you will find scattered throughout the works many profound, uh, marvelous uh, pieces on philosophy, but it's scattered throughout them, you see. And Hamid was quite right. Marx himself, I think he was aware of this, he intended to write a work on philosophy, but unfortunately he, di he died before he could do this. He was tied up with writing the first volume of Capital. Engels, I'm sure, also had the same idea and convinced of it. But the same thing, he was tied up to finishing volumes two and three of his marks left unfinished of Capital, and therefore he tragically died before he could do this. So it's a work I think is it's not seriously been undertaken. I'm trying to do that now, as Hamid and, and Fred both pointed out. And perhaps that will be the next. Would, it is an important contribution, you know. This is, it, the defense of revolutionary theory, as Lenin said, is a fundamental issue as far as revolutions are concerned. <laughs> now, Didiot, Comrade Didiot asked a question. I, I hope I got your name right. I probably didn't. Uh, will socialism turn into its opposite? Now, that's, that's an interesting thing. Well, let me put it this way. What, what, what I can say with absolute certainty is that capitalism must change into its opposite or else the continuation of this system is going to destroy not just civilization, it might even destroy the human race itself. There's a question mark because of the way the, the, 
the appalling destruction of the of the environment, which uh, which the environmentalists have taken up quite rightly, except that they can, don't provide any alternative. They make a lot of noise about the problem, and they're quite right for that, but they don't pose any alternative. The only alternative is the abolition of capitalism. That's a fact. Under capitalism, the productive forces, which is the only the motor force of history, basically, have ended into a blind alley now. And uh, there are two fundamental, we must, must remember, the two fundamental obstacles in the way of the development of the productive forces, and therefore of... Uh, of, of progress of, of civilization itself is on the one hand private ownership of the means of production, and in the second hand that monstrous relic of, of the past, which is the, the, the nation state. And no further progress can be made unless and until these obstacles are removed or they they are abolished. Uh, that that would lead to socialism, of course, which is based on the, the common ownership of the means of production. And therefore, product, production for, for the satisfaction of human need and not profit for the first time in 10,000 years. Now, the question that really the question the is asking is, yes, but will human progress cease with the establishment of socialism? Well, clearly not. Clearly not. Progress will continue. Even in the socialist and the communist society, the, the progress of the human race must continue. But what forms will that take? Well, you, you can't say. It's impossible to say. We don't, uh, unfortunately, possess a crystal ball, <clears throat> not yet anyway. <clears throat> and therefore, we can't see into that, that far into the future. And therefore, I, I think, to be honest with you, we can, we can quite safely leave <laughs> those decisions to future generations to sort out. Our task is different. Our task is to remove this monstrous obstacle, which is threatening to destroy all, 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 all future development, which is the capitalist system. That's our task. The rest we can leave to the future. I think that's fair enough. Um, now, Lubin asked a question, which is, I suppose, a bit personal <clears throat> in a way. It's also political. She asked me, how did your preparation for this book deepen your own understanding of Marxist philosophy? And has it impacted the next philosophy, philosophy book that you're writing now? Well, I, I started to study Marxism seriously philosophy, Marxist philosophy seriously, when I was 16 years of age, I'm still at school. Actually, I've still got my notes <clears throat> that I made then, they're knocking around here somewhere. And I've never stopped studying it to this day, that's a long time, de decades. It's such a vast topic, it's a huge topic, it never ends, you know. When I was 17 years of age, I started to read Hegel's History of Philosophy. That's a wonderful work. It's in three volumes, it's on the shelf there. Three bulky volumes. And it made a deep impression on me, deep impression. I think I read half of it, volumes one and half of, of volume two. And this is really the starting point of the present work because I was breathtaking, I was blown away by the, 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 the profundity of these great thinkers of the past. What a lot to offer, you know. Now, I wrote the first draft of the history of philosophy, of my history of philosophy, about 25 years ago. And then it, it was left because we didn't have room to publish it in the book that was intended in, in reason or devote. On, re on returning to it at the, the instigation of Hamid and other comrades who were twisting my arm, I found many things that I'd forgotten about, actually. And yes, it was a, it was a tremendous stimulus for me. And, I will, and I, will, I will undoubtedly be using parts of it in my new book, which will deal with Marxist philosophy uh, as, as such. And I hope very much that... Uh, that you will be inspired by these great ideas as what I was and what I still am and always will be. This is a, it's a never-ending source of inspiration to me, this, these, these marvelous writings of these great, great thinkers of the past who I have ceaseless admiration for. And uh, would, would, yes, they would help anyone that to, to, to understand the basic ideas. Now, unfortunately, the book which we've all been talking about, which is launched, officially launched today, has been delayed by circumstances beyond our control, with technical matters which I needn't go into. However, I do have, you know, they used to say on the cookery programs on TV, you know, here is one that I made before. <laughs> making a cake, and it's obviously a complicated affair. This suddenly get one which is beautifully done, and there's no mistakes. Here's one which I did before. Well, here's one, I didn't do it before, but I've got one anyway. 
And this is, uh, let me see if I've got this right. This, where is it, where is it? There we are, can you see that? I think you can. This is the famous book, and I think it's beautifully produced. The comments have taken to Comet Jack and others have, a lot, a lot of people collaborated, and this is beautifully done, beautifully produced. And I'm sure, I, I'm, I'm confident, that if you study this book carefully, that as I say, you will come away, I think you'll be surprised actually, you'll be surprised, pleasantly surprised, I hope. And then you'll come away from this uh, enriched personally, you'll be a better person for it, you'll be a better Marxist for it, that's for sure. And you'll be far better equipped as a fighter, as a soldier in the revolutionary. I mean, this is like, a, this this kind of book is like a, like a, a manual preparing the cadres of the revolution for, for the, you see, the idea that philosophy is somehow, and theory is divorced from practice is nonsense. Without an adequate grasp of theory, then the practice is no good, it's blind. You will never succeed. That's what really sets us apart. I mean, I know the communists have had a big success in the freshest phase. They're still having a big success. But sometimes they, they, they say people come up to them and say, well, no, we've got all these different societies and there's the SWP and there's, and there's the uh, Socialist Party and there's the Flat Earthist and other similar other creatures. Well, what's the difference with the Marxists? What comes the difference is, is frankly, it's here. That's the difference that sets us decisively apart from all other trends. Who, who frankly have got nothing to offer. I'll, I'll say that bluntly. People who run around shouting slogans and so on without understanding what they're talking about. They have nothing whatsoever to offer to anybody. They repeat the same nonsense that the economist put forward and which Lenin sharply denounced in what is to be done in other works. And we have no time for that. It's, that's got nothing in common with Marxism. No, 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 no. You better believe it, my friends. I'll, I'll uh, finish on this note. Today, the international Marxist tendency is the only Marxist tendency in the world, the only genuine Marxist tendency that stands firmly four square on the genuine ideas of Marx, Engels, Lenin, and Trotsky as the only possible means which can prepare our, our forces for the great historical task before us, which is none other than the socialist revolution in Britain, in Europe, and in the entire world. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marx's Voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net. And if you're able to, please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.